Welcome to Yellow and Brown Tales, Asian American Folk Life Today, a podcast where we give voice to the expressive culture of Asian American life, such as tradition, identity, food, and more. I'd like to start off by saying, in the wake of the pandemic, which has given rise to AAPI hate and violence against our communities, this four we put an open conversation about the urgency for Asian American folklore scholarship and perspectives in folklore in spite of the noticeable lack of Asian American voices. Historically, the Asian American body has been excluded from American life, perceived as an economic threat in the 19th century. Chinese people specifically were barred from immigrating to the United States for over 50 years with a series of exclusion acts. Asian Americans were denied the opportunity to own land, marry, and access citizenship. During World War II, Japanese Americans were suspected of having enemy loyalties and were incarcerated into internment camps. Stereotyped for the minoritized and isolated Asian Americans. Seen as monolithically successful, Asian Americans were often overlooked in distribution of public resources and pitted against other communities of color. Post 9-11, South Asian American communities were surveilled and placed on travel bans. Throughout the Asian American body, the forever foreigner, was never incorporated into the fabric of the United States. So this forum will explore the legacy of invisibility in the dearth of Asian American folklore and representation in the field. Asian American folklore scholarship is growing, but still underdeveloped. The impact of COVID-19 reignited dominant understandings of Asian Americans today, eclipsing the long history as well as the rich diversity within Asian American cultures. How do we understand the current crisis of AAPI hate as one that can magnify place and space that Asian Americans occupy in America? In what ways can the traditions and cultural expressions of Asian American life lessen the otherness and lend toward understanding? How can the study of Asian American folklore situate Asian American identity within the American landscape? So our forum participants offer perspectives from the academy, public institutions, and community activists on how Asian American folklore offers a deeper understanding of the ways in which communities have adapted and reinvented themselves or maintained certain kinds of practices given racialization and minoritization, the current state of education on Asian Americans and the role of AFS in future scholarship. So first, I'd like to give the forum participants the opportunity to introduce themselves briefly and say a few words about how they came to this. Okay, so Priya Khan, would you like to start, please? Sure, thank you, Nancy. And um, I'd like to just say a quick welcome to everybody who's joining us tonight. It's really wonderful to be in conversation with all of you. My name is Faria Khan. I'm the co-director of the Asian American Studies Program at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I came to Asian American studies really because I was in a master's program that was based on text in Arabic and Islamic studies, and I had a, a deep yearning to connect with human beings, and so came to Penn to really begin a comparative project, not only on South Asia, but on Muslims um, and the Middle East. My work really centers on South Asians and South Asian Muslims in the U.S., so I'll turn it over to Sojin. Hi, thanks for Hello, everyone. Great to see you all here. Greetings from DC. 
I'm Sojin Kim, and I am a curator at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. I am not an academic. I do not work within sort of the realm of academia. And for about half of my professional career, I did not work under the rubric of folklore, though I was doing work, which I would say is very much aligned with what I understand public sector folklore to entail, but that I was instead describing as public history or community history work. And this has involved engaging directly with communities to document and interpret heritage, traditions, and expressive culture. And this has sometimes, but not always, entailed work collaboratively produced with Asian American identified organizations and, and knowledge keepers. So my interest in this, in this session, in this discussion with all of you is that I really want to explore how we could work more effectively across different disciplinary and sectoral frames of reference to interpret and represent Asian American community life and culture with appropriate complexity. And, and I think in ways that would be accessible beyond academic discourse. And I turn over to Margaret. Thank you so much uh, for coming. I'm an independent folklorist, and I also work as a cultural resource program manager doing applied folklore for environmental compliance. And I also sometimes wear the hat of academic folklorist because I really enjoy doing research on the Asian American Pacific Islander issues. So I came to this topic because I've been writing about Asian American Pacific Islander folklore and Asian American Pacific Islander issues, both, as I said, as a folklorist and also as a former journalist. I'm drawn to the experiences that Asian Americans and Pacific Islander Americans or AAPI face. Within that label of AAPI, how do groups experience discrimination and exclusion? There is heterogeneity as can be seen in the cultural practices and responses of each group to the discrimination and exclusion laws. And I hope that we can further talk about those differences. Thank you. Lee? Hi, my name is Lee Wen, and I am currently a master's student at George Mason University. And I came along to this topic as someone who's very interested and has always had an interest in studying the AAPI, um, originally in literature where I started, but eventually folklore as I moved into the discipline and have found a bit of a denied access to it in certain areas in most areas of my interest. So I came to this this topic as someone who's interested in exploring these sort of diasporic academic systems in which we don't really see a lot of AAPI representation and trying to explore the way we can help teach representation by bringing it into the academic system. I believe this one is Professor Zhang. Thank you. Well, uh, I'm grateful that we have continued this conversation for at least uh, 10 years. Uh, and that's part of the reason I'm in this, this group coming to this topic. I began with my work on Chinese stuff and then later to Chinese American funeral uh, some 20 years ago. And from there, I realized that it's, it's like a, a stream of water, you know, it flows. And it's also like a tree. You have the leaves and the roots. They are inseparable. And for that reason, I've been emphasizing the connection of Asian and Asian American. But meanwhile, I also want to emphasize that we are not trying to draw boundaries to separate us from others. And with that idea, I've been working on the idea of a folkloric identity. That is, we study the common things rather than studying ethnicity or something. I'm happy that this conversation is continuing, but I'm also feeling a little 
uh, said that about 10 years ago, for example, Faria and Margaret, we worked on this topic and generated a special issue at the JF. But now 10 years passed, uh, I don't see this interest grows beyond this relatively small group. And today in particular, I'm happy that Lee is here to represent a new generations of voice uh, or ideas. I'll talk more about that later. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne, for your introduction. I also like to talk a little bit, also explain how I came to um, Asian American folklore. I was a community activist in Chinatown, San Francisco, and somebody had mentioned Asian American folklore that it really hasn't been, you know, a developed field of study, and there should be some more, some more scholarship on that. I don't remember the specifics, but I just remember that, and this was in the 90s, and that really kind of struck a chord with me, and ever since then, I've been trying to kind of look at Asian American folklore in combination with understanding how Asian Americans as a people are living. I, I thought that was just really important to document ourselves and also to have a, a sense of our own history in the United States context. Having said that, I'd like to move on to our first question for the forum participants, talking about how do we understand the current crisis of AAPI hate? I'd like to turn to Sojin Kim, who would like to make some comments first. I guess what I wanted to start with and establish from the get-go in terms of this discussion is that we need to be clear that this current crisis extends from really a long history of exclusion and marginalization. And that when we talk about the scapegoating harassment and violence that have been documented and part of public dialogue over the past year and a half, this is something that's an extension of historical circumstances and social structures and social constructions that have defined and positioned people of Asian heritage in certain roles and statuses over the last what century and a half since Asian people have been settling in the U.S. And Nancy has already talked about some of these persistent motifs that are in the public narratives that are told about Asian Americans. And I believe Faria will be addressing this some more. So what I just want to really say is I just want to remind and reinforce some of the key social contexts that are significant to our discussion. In terms of what's been going on over the last year and a half, I think important things to have in mind is that there was a new census that was completed in 2020. And there, there has actually have been a lot of stories about this lately. And what, they, what the census has revealed, and which we, I think we already knew, but what it's affirmed is that the increasing size and diversity of people who identify as Asian American. So we're looking at something around 20 million people now. This is triple what was counted um, just 30 years ago in the 1990 census. What we know, too, is that Asian people of Asian heritage are the fastest growing racial and ethnic population in the country, but that otherwise you really can't generalize. They're not generalizable in terms of where they live, their politics, their income, their education level, and other types of demographic markers. Other social contexts, obviously very key to this discussion. Over the last two years, Americans have all been really grappling with how to deal with essentially a dual pandemic, right? The, the new emergence of the COVID-19 virus and the persistence of racism and anti-Blackness. And Asian Americans have often spoken up against anti-Blackness and anti-Black violence, but in spring, May 2020, George Floyd's videotape murder has really inspired even more complex discussions among Asian Americans as they consider their community's historical complicity in perpetuating anti-Black violence and discrimination and in a lot of discussions about what, how could they provide more meaningful allyship. With respect to COVID, the virus, there's no question that it has uniquely impacted Asian Americans who have been specifically vulnerable to the virus because many live in multi-generational families because they are heavily represented among essential and frontline workers. And then if you think about economic consequences, so many Asian Americans are small business owners. 
And then, of course, there's been public scapegoating of Asian Americans in the media, by politicians on the street. And we know that reported hate crimes, which include murder and physical attacks, but also vandalism, slurs and harassment, have increased 150% since the previous year. And we know this because Asian American community vigilance organizing, all these sorts of efforts have been really impressive in terms of providing mutual aid to community members, creative responses, education, generating dialogue that is, I think, resonating wider and deeper than usual. And so you have, for example, the emergence of Stop AAPI Hate on the West Coast, which is tracking and responding to incidents of harassment and aggregating these incidents so that there is more public knowledge about it, offering resources. So I guess I would say that on the one hand, this recent crisis is terrible and it's exhausting, but it's not unfamiliar and it's not even necessarily unexpected. And without diminishing the direct suffering and tragedy that many people have been experiencing, I think we also want to consider, and that's what we're doing today, our current state as an opportunity. So, you know, from this moment, how do we leverage this substantive increased visibility of accounting for Asian American insights, experiences, and histories in all sorts of sectors? How, how can we think about what that looks like within the field of folklore? What, you know, what are the issues? What are the themes that would be particularly salient? And Freya, I'm going to turn over to you to follow. Great. Thank you so much, Sojin. So I, I hope that some of the things that we are talking about at this moment, we can continue into a deeper conversation. So I'll just raise a couple of points. Nancy and Sojin have already made mention of, of some of these. You know, I think Sojin's comments are really poignant. I, I was actually going to also begin with the fact of March 2021 in Atlanta, when the murders of several Asian Americans happened. A few people who were non-Asian remarked to me, this is shocking, you know, that this happened to the Asian American community. And so I want to begin with that because it occurred to me instantly, is it shocking? Because in, in my perspective, it feels like a repetition of history, right? And so, you know, if we look at Asian American history, what I would urge us to think about is that it is a history of exclusion. We simply have to look at immigration laws that the U.S. has clearly established over decades, barring the Asian body from being included in the American landscape. Right. And so as Nancy and Sojin have both mentioned, you know, there were specific laws, right? The Chinese Exclusion Act, the Alien Land Laws, Immigration Acts, one after another, 1917, 1946, the laws against owning land, anti-miscegenation laws, the incarceration of Japanese Americans, right? Islamophobia, special registration. These are all parts of U.S. legislation that prevented Asian Americans from becoming part of the American landscape, right? Meanwhile, I think it's also critical to understand two things. One is that often when we think back on these particular histories, it's particular communities in isolation, right? As if the Chinese Exclusion Act only impacted the Chinese or land laws were only impacting Punjabi farm workers, right? 
But Asian Americans built this country, whether it was on the railroads, whether it was in the farms or the sugar plantations or the lumber mills, right? And they did it together. But our history lessons often pit particular communities in isolation, whereas that was actually not reality. So we look at this history of exclusion. We then have to also consider that the desire was to have the labor of the Asian American body, but not the lives of the Asian American body. And so by excluding their lives, it has led to an invisibility of Asian Americans in the popular discourse and in other history books, right? It's not, it's a special lesson if you have half an hour on uh, Japanese internment or something, but it's not a regular part of our history lessons. And so this is very important to think about in terms of the invisibility of Asian Americans. So when we think about our own discipline, right, in the American Folklore Society, we can just look back at the articles historically in JAF. And so you have very few works of scholarship that address Asian Americans, right? They may be talking about Asians in the US, but often this scholarship does not have the perspective of Asian Americans, right? It's a particular practice or tradition that occurred in Asia and may have been brought over to the US. This particular way, this particular perspective of thinking about Asian Americans actually adds to the invisibility. So it not only adds to the invisibility, but it blurs the lines of who is Asian and who is American. And so this is within our own discipline. It is also exists in, the, in our US history. And I wanna just present that to you. And and certainly I'm gonna turn it over now for us to continue in the forum, but I want to circle back to it and hopefully have a a deeper conversation with all of you on it. I move on to our next question. How can the study of Asian American folklore situate Asian American within the American landscape? And I'd like to take this on a little bit and think about the legacy we have inherited from ethnic studies um, in the late 1960s. So I know that you are familiar with it or maybe not so familiar with it. Some of you may have participated in it, lived through it on your on area from the Thorough Liberation Front, which was a coalition of Native, Black, Latino, and Asian student groups at San Francisco State College, as it was then called, and UC Berkeley, to demand classes that address their own history. They felt that the current education system was Eurocent- hegemonically Eurocentric, and they wanted classes that address their own history, that were taught by people from their own communities, and that the students of color would have the ability to determine who those faculty of color would be who would be teaching these classes. So what we have is that this legacy of ethnic studies really reshaped, reframed education for a lot of people, one that was not serving corporate needs and how to just get a job and make money, but demonstrated that education was really revolutionary and would provide the tools to help their own communities. And so it really also highlighted that there were definite deficits in American education that was not complete and that ethnic studies could be part of the answer. However, 
in the 50 years since ethnic studies, there have been lots of ethnic studies programs that have developed, but in the 50 years since, we have also seen the dismantlement of ethnic studies classes where they are seen, where they're relegated to pet projects and luxuries rather than necessities. And we move this model of vacation and returning to where it serves business needs, where you just you get an education to get a job, which means that you have to, your education is shaped for corporate needs. So part of that loss is that we see the rise in AAPI hate because people are not educated about this part of American history. And we return to this model of second class citizenry for Asian Americans, and we lose these lessons of ethnic studies, and it becomes kind of watered down as plurality or diversity, and not really thinking about the revolutionary purpose of education that the World Liberation Front really wanted to put forth for us. So I think what a focus on Asian American studies and Asian American folklore studies does in particular, would, uh, what it would do in particular is to honor that legacy, to continue that legacy, do what folklore does best, which is to document Asian American history, because there just isn't a lot of even documentation of Asian American history or Asian American life in the United States. So right now, I'd like to pass it over to Margaret. Thank you, Nancy. So the question of how the study of Asian American folklore can situate Asian American identity within the American landscape can be answered one way, for me at least. It has the power of illuminating the identity of those who have not been considered, who are in effect been made invisible. So with ethnic studies programs being dismantled or not funded, it is really more critical now to have Asian American folklore included in all, all places so that there's documentation for our own communities. But even in the folklore field, scholars of color from the AAPI background are not brought readily into the canon. Students are left to fend for themselves unless their mentors guide them to studies that have been published. For example, Dr. Herminia Menez Colbin's research has not been widely publicized. When her book on verbal arts in Philippine indigenous communities was published in 2007, there was only one book review done by a folklore journal, and I was the one to do it for Journal of American Folklore. So I didn't see any reviews from Western Folklore or Journal of Folklore Research. So why was a book on verbal arts of 10 indigenous Philippine communities and how they deal with poetics and social change not widely communicated? It, it should have been added to the canon. And her other work, Explorations in Philippine Folklore in 1998, is a masterful collection of essays ranging from a structural analysis of a Philippine folktale to a performance-oriented examination of narratives from Filipino-Americans in California, as well as an excellent feminist look at the role of women in Philippine society and how they were disenfranchised during Spanish colonization. And these effects are still felt today within the Filipino-American community. So I am intellectually indebted to Dr. Coben, and I can't speak highly enough of her work. We need to encourage more work and also to publicize what we do have and make them widely available, amplified, and acknowledged. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks, Margaret. In what ways can the traditions and cultural expressions of Asian American life lessen the otherness and lend toward understanding? Start us off, off again. Um, I return to Margaret. 
It is really easy to treat people as other if you don't know anything about them. So this is where education and information about Asian American folk life and folklore can really lend to that understanding. So I'm currently exploring about the connections between the Karen meme and anti-Asian discrimination and looking at the ways, first of all, I wanna apologize. It's unfortunate to all the Karens out there and unfortunate to stereotype a whole group of people. But what I wanna do is take a look at the name that is now part of American folk speech and what it is calling out. So it has become what my colleague Sojin Kim had mentioned earlier, a shorthand, unquote, shorthand way of explaining all the prejudices and discrimination that Asian Americans have learned to deal with. What the Karen meme has achieved is that it has given Asian Americans and others a way to communicate those painful experiences of discrimination that have not been talked about. So for me, I discovered in my exploration of this topic that the term Karen is able to describe imperfectly, but still able to bring about some idea of what it is like to be subjected to microaggressions, years of discrimination, that is a familiar experience for many in the AAPI community. So whether someone is mocking your accent, gesturing about your nose or your eyes, or just plain telling you to your face to go back to your country, the microaggressions of the everyday that add another layer of the, you know, to the historical trauma that many in the AAPI community experience just coming to America. So Karen gives a language to talk about the Asian American experience that makes it understandable graspable and more visible to the general public. That's just one example. Thank you. Sojin? Thank you, Margaret. First of all, I, I thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I come from a slightly different place because I'm, again, working in the public sector. And so the types of things that I am more directly involved in and concerned with are issues of, well, I mean, similar to what Margaret was talking about, visibility, representation, but also accessibility. And so I think a lot about how do Asian Americans turn up in public programming? So not necessarily in the journal articles or in the scholarship, but where, where are we seeing them in public programming if they are or are not represented in the archives, if they are or are not represented in education initiatives? So I think a lot about what is the content that's available to the public, teachers, researchers, students, how do we interpret it, present it? How do we make it accessible? And I, I want to really shout out to public sector colleagues who I think have actually really done a tremendous job, you know, whether we're talking about our colleagues at City Lore in New York City or the Philadelphia Folk Life, Philadelphia Folklore Project, um, or the Alliance for California Traditional Arts in California. I mean, these folks have been working with and supporting Asian American culture bearers in many, many different genres uh, for decades. And I think too, when I think about the, the issue of visibility and invisibility, again, in the public sector, I think about the NEA National Heritage Fellows. This is, you know, the, the most prestigious or the biggest award in folk and traditional arts we have in the U.S. And I think about the cohort of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders who have been a part of, of the Heritage Fellows, um, including recently Tegumpe de Leon in Los Angeles. I, I feel that there is, in fact, some really fine work that's being done in communities, by communities, and also by public sector folklorists. And again, for me, the question always is, is how do we how do we talk across sectors? And then also, how do we talk to our colleagues, as Margaret pointed out, and other disciplines who have in fact done really, really fine work, really important work that many of us who work or maybe 
who think about our work within a, the discipline of folklore, who actually have been coming out of other disciplines and who have been supporting community documentation, who have been interpreting Asian American communities and cultures, again, since, as Nancy talked about, since the late 1960s, when Asian Americans, for example, started really taking control of producing knowledge about our communities. I feel like I've digressed a little bit, but I, but, but I just wanted to place that the role and the visibility of Asian Americans in public sector work out there. Um, I also want to shout out Phyllis, who is, I think, on this call and a number of other people who are participating, including my, my fellow roundtable participants here who have been participating in this project that Phyllis and Olivia spearheaded through the AFS CDC project, which is to really recognize the ancestors who have not been conventionally recognized as the, 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 our, our predecessors or the, the builders, the formers of American folklore scholarship, but to look instead at people who have been under-recognized to really lift up ancestors of color. And I have really loved working on this project. I appreciate so much Phyllis and Olivia for what they've done to bring this together. I appreciate actually the support that AFS, Jessica and Meredith have provided. And I can say that, you know, in, in Oklahoma in 2020. Two, when the newer version, the expanded version of the exhibition opens, there will be at least 20 new Asian American and Pacific Islander ancestors who, who will have been profiled for this. Thank you, Sojin. Now we uh, move on to Lee Wynn. Thank you guys so much. That was so wonderful for all that talking about this great problem of visibility because I come to come from a different kind of background. And the fact that I've been more interested in the idea of studying the API literature, like I mentioned earlier, I started an English program and moving into folklore. And as I attempted to go through my academic career, I actually found a lot of roadblocks set up in this place where I wanted to expand my knowledge. I would go and request to my teachers, I'm interested in studying this. And I would always be encouraged to pursue it independently or in shorthand, alone, not because there wasn't encouragement as a student, but because anytime I ever went to explore this topic, I was simply informed that nobody was present in the department who could assist me. There was nobody currently who would know any scholarship, who would understand how to even teach me. And many times, in fact, those were the words I would hear. I don't know how to teach you this particular on this particular subject. So I spent so much of my academic career pursuing independent projects on my own time, as it were, and kind of in a way forcing my own interests into the curriculum of teachers who, though trying to be supportive and again, no short term informed me, this is something I would be pursuing alone. This came to a head one day when I was taking a class and as we were going over the syllabus, we were discussing in the syllabus this desire to create an inclusive scholarship to be representative of both ethnic and minority groups who have been otherwise invisibilized. And as we were going through the syllabus, I noticed that there were no AAPI or even Asian scholarships of any kind represented. So I came to the teacher afterwards and I asked, well, what happened to this side of the voices? What happened to this side of the representation? And again, I found the answer to be, I don't know anything about it. So I don't feel comfortable trying to teach it. And at this point, I realized I myself had been contributing to the invisibility of AAPI in the academic system. 
because I had become acceptant of this idea that this is the way the academic system works. I am to pursue my interests independently, and then this is the way that the system was designed. And so by realizing this, I've come to want to contribute more by looking at how we can change not so much the system, but our daily representation, bringing forth into the academic sphere just scholarship for when somebody like myself would like to go and do research. We don't come across people who would like to be supportive, but don't even know where to do it by, as uh, Margaret was saying, bringing more attention to the scholars that we would like to see simply by representing them. And I think that's where we should kind of start, because if we can teach in our classrooms the representation we want to see in the world, then it will start expanding outwards. Okay, thank you, Lee. Next, we turn to Joanne Zhang. Thank you. I'm grateful that all these uh, key issues are discussed. I think uh, I will just uh, further elaborate some of the points made already. For example, Maria talked about the, the U.S. history is a history of exclusion. And I think we can use the same logic to see that to say that the folklore studies has also this history of exclusion, institutional or disciplinary exclusion as well. Disciplinary exclusion, invisibility is shown specifically in publication. Of course, that reflects what Lee just mentioned, the curriculum construction and so on. Okay, here I have uh, specific examples to illustrate the points made by my colleagues here. Well, I want to make it clear that I mentioned these, I'm talking about the individuals. And simply because of this, I want to address this is not individual issue, it's a disciplinary issue, it's institutional issue. One example is the JAF special issue entitled Critical Folkloristic Today, which was published last year. In this special issue, it's talking about the critical folkloristics today. And then what about the, the ethnic issue, Asian American issue? It's hidden, it's, it's implied, it's invisible. If you look at the past five years history of Western folklore, the Journal of Western Folklore or Journal of Folklore Research, again, almost zero, except the last year's issue on the special issue on ethnic folklore, where Margaret and Faria had pieces related to Asian American. And then in particular, as you all noticed that this past summer, two volumes are published by the IU Press. One is entitled, Theorizing Folklore from the Margins, Critical and Ethnic Approaches. This collection of 16 essays covered many ethnic groups, except Asian American groups. And the other volume also published this summer, is called Advancing Folkloristics. There are 14 essays. There's only one mention of Asian American in terms of just social justice issue. That's only one mention in the whole volume. So this clearly illustrates the current reality in our field, American folklore studies field. The reason they can't get the, the topic of Asian American studies in their volumes might be there are not no people doing this, or people have no interest in this, but that's the bottom line, it's the reality. So here I want to end with a, a quote from Lisa Gilman, 
who was uh, courageous enough uh, to bring the last year's AFS panel into a, a special issue, the latest special issue, as you see. So here's a quote from Lisa Gilman. It is long past due for folklorists to acknowledge that our field within the United States emerged out of and in the service of white dominance. So I think this question is well recognized. And next, perhaps, is to find ways to do that. And in, in order to do that, I think, for example, Lee just talked about, we should start with the basic education curriculum construction, uh, not only at the graduate school level or folklore field, but try to go through all means to to, to public K-12 education or the entire social education to educate people about the history of Asian America, right? So as Faria and uh, Sojin talked about, this history of America can be so without Asian Americans. So we, we have a lot to do. I think that's uh, what I want to emphasize. Thank you. Thanks, Joanne, for pointing those things out and for your comments. Um, now I'd like to open up the floor, open up our session for a conversation among everybody. And if you have questions, please chat or somebody would like to raise their hand and uh, have a comment, please go ahead. Yes, so um, asked about um, if anyone wanted to address the current backlash in, for example, Texas and restricting ethnic history studies courses even further than they have been in the past. So I don't know if anyone who's working at a university or who's working in education wants to specifically address that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not in the public education system, but we know the fact that Illinois passed a law last year or early this year that they want to, they add Asian American history into the K-12 education system. And now we have a, another extreme, Texas is taking out this history. I think this is not surprising as Sojin talked about, uh, to a great extent, we are repeating the history a hundred years ago. That is, uh, we need to find uh, victims to, to blame for whatever we, the mistakes or the, the wrong part we are doing. For example, the very reason that the 1875 Page Act to block Chinese women, and then 1882 to Chinese exclusion, and 1924 Asian exclusion. All of these exclusion acts passed as a result of the social demand. That is, Chinese or Asians are taking our jobs. They are bad, they are so so. At that time, the studies show that the 80 or 90% of American public had negative feelings about Chinese, for example. And today, not long ago, Pew Center published a report that, uh, again, we are reaching back to that uh, record. That is about 90% American public had a negative feeling about Chinese or China. So we are repeating the history as Sojin point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can, I, can I just add to, I mean, you know, Louisa, I think this is actually a pretty complicated question. And I think there are, there are multiple ways to think about this. One might be just the discomfort of white supremacy for people of color to exist outside of multiculturalism, right? So if, you know, you can be your ethnic or your share your personhood of color, as long as it's within 
sort of this multicultural framework that resides in the larger framework of white supremacy, right? So, but if you step outside of those bounds and be, try to become incorporated, right, into the larger body, then that's not okay. And so to have any kinds of discussions where, for example, specifically because of this panel, the Asian American body is seen as part of the US fabric and, and shares this sort of uncomfortable ugly history, it's much more complicated, right? So that's, I think, one piece of it. But then the other piece I'm also thinking a lot about is the fact of where we are at this particular moment in academia where intellectual discourse is really under attack in many ways, right? Where professors are you know being vilified for sharing material or having certain viewpoints where trustees or very rich donors will come and monitor you, right? The University of Pennsylvania is actually facing a lawsuit right at this very moment, it was on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer for sponsoring a conference that 30,000 people attended on Hindutva, right, which is something that now is under, is the university is now under attack for, for sponsoring an intellectual conversation. So I think there's all, that strain too, is that this particular moment is really about whether or not the integrity of intellectual freedom is intact as well. I just wanted to add something that I heard this morning at the CDC panel, and I think it was from Diana, and she mentioned that you have to remember that you take one step forward and they put you back one step. So, you know, in Texas, they may be doing this restriction against ethnic studies requirement, but at least in other states, like in California, they had to send that law, that particular curriculum back before Newsom, the governor, could sign it because there were several groups that were not represented. So they they went out and searched for, you know, more information and more studies that could be included in the curriculum. And they said that it's meant to be flexible. So if a person, for example, if a student is in a location where there is a greater amount of South Asians, they're going to make sure to include that in the curriculum, as opposed to wherever the other students might be. So I'm just thinking it, it just, I just wanted to share that because we have to really just keep walking forward. Yeah. And, and Phyllis has mentioned critical race theory too, which is also under attack. I don't know, Phyllis, if you want to add to that. It's a pleasure to be here to, today with all of my friends here and uh, all the good work you're doing. I think this is a, an important uh, discussion. And I think the, the ban on critical race theory is a ban on something that most people don't even understand what it is, first of all, but signifies that people are terrified that the communities that have been marginalized are now moving into a status that can be equal to the majority. I heard a talk last week by a scholar named Caritha Mitchell, 
who says that the microaggressions all the way to violence are part of a strategy that she calls know your place aggression. In other words, that this is trying to put us back in our places in the society so that white supremacy can be dominant. And it can work on the microaggression level, but it can also move towards murder like Vincent Chin. And all of it is about trying to bring us back under control when we're, our communities, are, our populations are rising. People are moving out of the assigned statuses. I mean, Obama became president. That wasn't supposed to happen in some people's mind. All of that is unsettling in society that does not tell itself that it's based on white supremacy. At least it didn't until Trump and is wrestling with how is the world going to change and all these groups that we've excluded or banned or segregated or isolated now have have voice. How can we take it back to normal, to the ways that things used to be? Mm-hmm. I want to just jump in and, and add to, to those comments too, Phyllis, is that I also think that there's a very real fear of the of the communities that have been isolated and marginalized of coming together as well right and so yes. you know historically if we look at the asian american experience and and this post 65 immigration act we see this very very this very specific agenda of the model minority myth right which comes out of the civil rights era right which tells asian americans you are the model minority right? You're not white. You're kind of close, but you will not be white. You're still minoritized, but hey, you're better than other people of color, right? And this is in 1966, right in the middle of the civil rights movement, right? So this is not something to be ignored, but rather understood as something that is pitting communities of color against each other. Absolutely. And the rewards you're better than the others, or you're almost white. Almost white. You're honorary white. Yes. Those are the reward. Mm-hmm. At least you're not black. Because it is it is a form of anti-blackness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Christina has a question. Thank you very much. I am so delighted that we're having this conversation and it continuing some of the work that was done last year at AFS that was really kind of, you know, helping us all breathe. I just wanted to make a kind of personal comment and then ask a question. So I don't know how many of you know me, but I, 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 am, I identify as an Anglo-Indian Italian. I have become an American citizen, but I don't identify as American when I'm doing the, my self-identification, let's say in part because I have lived in Hawaii most of, well, half of my life now. And I consider myself here a a settler of color and not really an Asian American either because so many local people of Asian ethnicity who don't really identify as Asian American where the mainland cultures are different and so on, I don't belong in those areas. So I'm saying all this because while 
this, I'm, I'm in part responding maybe to what, and I'm going to mispronounce your name, Yuan Zhang has said that, you know, we want to identify and make a place, right, to within the history and the future of the present and future of folkloristics, because there's been all this dismissal and, and exclusion, right, of Asian American, but also Pacific Islanders and Black and Latino and so on, ethnicities and, and folklorists and folklore. We want to make a place, but we also want to ally ourselves with others, right, who find themselves in mar marginalized positions. So my question is, in my experience, the American Folklore Society has not been a very welcoming place for scholars and artists, folk artists of color. Very good showcase stuff, but not a very welcoming place. It's particularly been uninterested, I think, in Hawaii. Hawaii is not willingly a part of the U.S. It is an occupied and colonized nation where you find a lot of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, not just Hawaiians, Native Hawaiians. But there's been very little interest in Hawaii. And frankly, I think Hawaiians have not been interested, right, in American folklore society because that's not what they identify with Americans. So how do you remedy exclusion when it is just so systemic that there isn't even any interest there on either part? And can this even be done in an organization that is first and foremost American? Like how many of you or how many of us are part of more international folklore societies? Is that a more welcoming place? How many of us go to the American, well, this may be the American Studies Society, uh, Association, excuse me, that has really kind of rehauled itself and made the changes that I think the American Folklore Society is not even close to considering. If I, if I can say on that, I can uh, uh, agree so much with what you're saying, um, especially that last part with the international society. I one of the first things I did when I came to folklore and I knew I was going to be interested in studying more Asian scholarship and Asian American scholarship was I looked for those societies because I wanted to join in and hear what the conversation was. And I found little to no, there was none. Um, there was none because one of the biggest problems people kept coming across was the language barrier. How do we communicate when we can't communicate? And to my answer to your question of how do we get that interest when there doesn't seem to be an interest is we need to create it. And that would be what we're, we're trying to do here, but not, but take it a step further, uh, bringing it into the classrooms at a younger age, introducing people to it, allowing those generations to grow up with less barriers and more information to make it feel normal versus other, making this concept feel like you don't even have to think about it anymore so that when people do want to engage more and find those societies and be part of it, more people will be willing to go into it and create what is missing and fill in those gaps by simply making it so. We, we would manifest what we desire by creating a place that feels natural to have that instead of making everyone feel othered and as though it would be 
us against them. I, I think it was say where you don't want to hit those those borders or to find people who are saying, oh, well, you're going to have your place and we'll have our place and that's how it's going to be. But to create those connections and making those bridges by first bringing it into everyday conversation and bringing that up. And I think that's one of the main things we're trying to do today and then taking that to the next step and doing that together. So Lee and Christina, thanks for your comments and those insights. I think this is really important part of the conversation. And Lee, you know, Lee is, is the only person in this session that I was meeting for the first time actually through our prep for this. And I'm really glad you were a part of this because I think you said one of the most alarming things, which is that when you had asked about courses, you were essentially told people couldn't teach it. They didn't know anything about it. And I think, and this is where I sort of trying to get back to what Christina is saying is I, I struggle with this issue about, you know, whether AFS is welcoming or not, or whether and how AFS needs to change. And partly it's because I don't feel myself as an Asian American othered. I work in contexts in which there is robust, vibrant work happening and where none of us feel that we don't have a voice, that we have been excluded from something that we want to be a part of necessarily. Like I, I feel like there are so many people doing incredible, powerful work. They just aren't calling themselves folklorists. They are in allied disciplines. Again, they're working in the public sector. They're working in communities. And so I think it's, and so Lee's, response though to you, Christine, I think is interesting because I think the way that things change is through actually working on projects together is it's not sort of, it happens through the making of of things. And when you actually see that there is a, a purpose and a reason to collaborate and work with someone, it's not by, you know, necessarily sponsoring more scholarships or trying to do any sort of affirmative action type of, I don't know, a, a way of bringing more people in. I think it's I don't know. I feel like it's it's a natural. It can be a more naturally occurring thing, and I I would just urge people again. Like I, I am alarmed that 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 universities don't know how to find people to teach these courses because there are so many people who are expert in this who are out there doing fine work. And the same would go for publications and volumes. You know, edited volumes. There there are just so many people out there, and and it's a deficit. Um, we can talk about it as being exclusion, and I think in some cases it is exclusion. But I I also don't want to ever place Asian Americans, Asian American scholars or professionals or artists in a place where they are positioned as, as victims because they're, they're, again, like I know that there is such fine work out there that's happening. And as, you know, as far as many of these people are concerned, whether or not they're accepted or represented in AFS doesn't matter. Hart has their hand up. First of all, thank you so much for the wonderful panel. And I would like to invite the panelists to um, to respond to a question that I'd like to ask about, you know, how about the, um, where did you see the opportunity of the collaboration with the colleagues? I mean, at least at AFS. I mean, you have all identified those challenging issues and those barriers for us to communicate. For example, um, so Christina mentioned about other organizations. So. Actually, last week I attended an American Study Association conference, and the topic is about creativity within revolt. So many American scholars focus on the abolitionist movement, where you know, as uh, white colleagues, they are also suffering a lot. So I just would like to you know to to think about when when they actually engage with those collaborative works, they also expose themselves a lot in terms of talking about race, gender, and ethnicity. American itself is already very diverse based on its own history. And so I just like to hear more about where do you see 
um, the opportunity for us to celebrate the cultural diversity. Well, through our work, through the field work or other conversations, especially for me as um, emerging scholars who are interested in study folklore and other interdisciplinary uh, fields related to folklore, I really would like to hear more thoughts on this. Thank you. Hart, that's a great question, you know, and I, I'm thinking about this too. I was fortunate enough to go to school with Margaret and Joanne, so um, that made collaboration really easy. And so that's just, you know, one thing, but, you know, I think that the ways that we think about scholarship are expanding, right? I think that we can not think so much about the boundaries of public sector work and academia, right? That there's ways to overlap that. There's ways that our scholarship can overlap with community organizations and activists and community leaders, right? To really incorporate their work as well. I think those are moments of real collaboration and identity too. I'm I'm going to be teaching a new course on race, which doesn't look at this is a black problem, this is an Asian problem, this has to do with, you know, the Latinx community, but it's really looking at issues and then seeing how those issues impact all of these communities together. You know, it's sort of just flipping that narrative a little bit instead of talking about discrete communities, really thinking about issues and how they're impacting and creating moments of solidarity, right? But also how we're thinking about the questions in our field can offer opportunities for those lines to become blurred, right, as well for, for you to think about that. I would say, you know, to just to continue to think about things outside of the box, right, instead of like the, the sort of the box that we in academia find ourselves in to really think beyond that. And then to really encourage, and this goes back to Christina's point too, is to really colorize your syllabus. So if you're getting a white syllabus, make sure that you approach your instructor to make sure it's as colorful as possible. Building on what Faria said is don't settle for the assumption that this is a white country. It's never been. It always has had a multicultural history. So look for those opportunities where you can build on the the multicultural stories and and highlight those. And then you you become one of those people that contributes to the discourse. And then we can be putting you in the syllabus. And, And your work being in the syllabus brings new questions. It's easy to think that there aren't opportunities, but there there are, you have to look for them and make them and look for allies in other fields to collaborate with, to get that story. You know that there are Asian American studies departments or programs, maybe their work will help you build your work. I was in American multicultural studies. We try to build that story. I think, Hart, that you're already doing exactly what you need to do to build those connections is by attending other types, you know, attending other conferences, hearing what other scholars are writing about, hearing how they are coming at maybe a similar topic, but from a slightly different perspective and framework. I think there's a lot of people on this call who are doing really 
great work outside the discipline of folklore. You know, I, I, I see that Laurie Summers is on here. I know that Margaret, both of them work in, in historic preservation in that space. And I think that those collaborations are incredibly important. And I know that our colleagues in preservation see the work of folklorists as being super important because we deal with the intangible that animates these physical places. So I think, it, you know, you're, you're doing exactly what I think what one should be doing. And the other thing is, is you know, it's, there, are other, there are lots of different kinds of forums or platforms for presentation. And there are there are so many community organizations who, especially during COVID, who have been organizing their their events, their annual events, their dinners, their 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 talk stories, their series of public programs online. And I have participated in so many of those this past year. And so I think it's also thinking, you know, what are the other kinds of organizations that you might work with, that you might present with? Yeah, actually, I just want to. Focus on one point you just mentioned that's growing community, our community. What is our community? You know, we talk about the Asian American, African American, so on and so forth. I think now it's time to reflect upon this essential question, whether we talk about internationalization or something. What is this uh, idea of othering others working? Now we know from the top politicians, so they began to use the systemic racism term, but we have to realize that this usage at the high official level is, is actually a rewording of the concept of institutionalized racism, which was defined 50 years ago, but nobody really picked up this idea because it was done by an African-American, Black American. Now, this thing, earlier talked about the curriculum and, and so on and so forth. Well, use my own institution. We have an American Ethnic Studies program. But for 20 years, I've tried, I'm trying to jump in, offering my courses or so on. But I'm excluded, clearly excluded. And if you look at the Harvard University, just a couple of weeks ago, they got a huge funding to expand their race, ethnicity programs, something like that. Because currently, Asian American studies in Harvard University is almost zero in terms of faculty. If you open their website, look at their faculty, zero. One, yeah, there's one. I mean, I'm exaggerating zero. But the point is, I want to make is that uh, we are pushed to this trap that we divide and conquer. Remember, Frederick Douglass talked about this over 100 years ago. And then now today, we find that some kind of a power structure is trying to manipulate this discourse that this is uh, between white and black and or between colored or not colored. But this is a, a dangerous move because they lumped all these white together and all non-white together. That's not true because Frederick Douglass said this, the system was divide and conquer. Divide whom? Divide the, the, the rich, the slave owner or the top white versus the poor white and others. So we are in same group, same community. And now you see today on campus or even today, we use the words, but we may easily fall this mis fantasy that, oh, there's a pockets, pockets, pockets here. But no, we shouldn't do that. We should unite. Think about this US census for decades. They've been using the sixth category using race, 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 and California or some states began to label more. 
you are Asian. No, that's not enough. You have to label your Chinese, Japanese, or Hmong, or this. And all those are racist. What is that, right? So think about this strategy of dividing and conquer. And it's going on. And it lets you fight. And as a result, who is benefiting? And that's exactly what the systemic racism is about, I think. We really need to break the boundary that unite together to build this new concept of identity. Well, I will wrap up then. And um, Nancy, I'm sorry, your, your internet is bad. I know you probably had lots of words of wisdom for us as we, as we say goodnight to everyone. But I want to thank my fellow colleagues and my panelists, friends. Thank you so much. It's always such a joy to be with you at AFS. I'm sorry, we're not together in person. But I also want to thank all of the people that joined us for this conversation. And please, let's continue to have it. Let's continue to think about the role of race in all of our work and our society as well. And so if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us and we'll look forward to seeing you at more panels at AFS. Thank you so much. Yellow and Brown Tales, Asian American Folklife Today is a podcast that is supported by the Asian American Studies Program at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.